we're only going to go on until 12.30. I've spoken with the Sunday school people. The brethren here would like to, and that's fine with me, to conclude early uh, with the conference over in, in Livingston. I'm not so sure about the conference, but I made it clear I just don't want to miss that good Italian meal over there that's waiting for me. I don't know about you, but I've come a long ways for that. So hope you're able to come over and join us there too if you can. Uh, I really don't know what to uh, tell you this morning. I told you everything I knew last fall, and I told you some things other people knew. I'd like to tell you a few things that nobody knows. <laughs> so, but I am going to share with you a few things I've enjoyed from Isaiah in chapter 52 and 53. Isaiah 52, first of all. And Lord willing, I plan to be back here with to share the gospel with Mr. Matthew Kane tonight for your gospel meeting. <clears throat> Isaiah 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted, extolled, be very high. As many as were astonished, thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard uh, shall they consider. Chapter 53, verse 1, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as the lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so open he not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut out, cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, and that is a plural word, with the rich in his deaths. Plural. We'll come back to that. Because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore... Will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. <clears throat> I think most of us are familiar with the fact that we have servant psalms, as we speak of as such, that are dealing with the true servant of Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ as that true servant and also it's been often pointed out that from chapter 42 to the end of chapter 53 it is servant that after that it is servants many servants Jehovah had one servant in whom was all his delight one servant that never failed him 
One servant that was pure within and without. It's interesting, but what we are reading in Isaiah chapter 53 really is the testimony or the conversion of a people yet to take place. This really hasn't happened, but we are being told in this chapter by Isaiah how it's going to take place. Of more interest is the fact that when you get to the New Testament, and get to Acts in chapter 8, and you read the story of the Ethiopian man going across the desert and uh, meets Philip the Evangelist, uh, Philip discovers him reading whatever he got from Jerusalem. It must have been a huge disappointment for him. I mean, you think of that man where he would have traveled from likely Sudan, way down there, all the way up to Jerusalem, because that's likely where he heard that the true worshippers were. That's likely where he heard that the true God was worshipped. And likely he was tired with the idolatry of the country that he came from. So he makes that long trip way up there, only to discover when he gets there, it's not what he thought it would be. He arrives there, and it's what the Lord Jesus said it was. It was a house of merchandise. They were trading. They were selling animals. There was anything but that which represented the true God in that house. You would think that's the end of it. That man will never get it. But it's interesting that in spite of the failure, in spite of the failure of people at any given time, God still triumphs. While he was there, how he obtained it, I do not know, neither do you. But he, he received all he needed which was part of this wonderful prophecy of Isaiah, and he's traveling across that barren desert, reading it, doesn't understand it. He makes full confession to Philip. When he's asked, understand thou, Understandest thou what thou readest? You remember the words, How can I accept some man should guide me? And we read that Philip preached unto him Jesus. He wanted to be guided. No, he just didn't. Uh, sit there in a kind of a lotus position in the chariot or in the desert and say, uh, I'm going to explain this to you. I didn't do that. See, we have people today that would tell us that uh, our format for preaching is just old style. That belongs to a former generation, a former age, out with this Victorian preaching where you stand up and tell people they're on a broad road, taking them to a place they don't want to go to, but this is how you deal with it. You talk to them about it. So what Philip did. He had one in the audience and he preached unto him, Jesus. And where he was reading was right from this passage. Reading somebody else's testimony. I think some of us can relate to that. In gospel tracts or whatever it might have been, before we were saved, wanting to be saved, you'd read these stories of how other people were saved, and you would try to fit yourself into their experience. But you can't do that. You can't do that. You had to have your own. However, that's just a little of the background of some of what we know from the New Testament of this beautiful passage of what we know to be Isaiah 53. The, the, the passage really starts in chapter 52 because if you don't behold the servant, if you don't see the one of whom he is speaking, in other words, if you don't recognize him for who he is, you'll never appreciate him for what he's going to do. It's interesting, the Lord Jesus never, never talks about the church in a wide aspect building it, or the church in a local aspect, Matthew chapter 18, until there is a confession of who he is. Once Peter says to him, Thou art the Christ, no one beside you. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then proceeds the Lord Jesus to say, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And let us keep in our minds that he is building his church. And the administrative forces of darkness will not hinder it. 
We may lament the fact that we don't see what we'd like to see or what happened in an earlier day when many people were saved in a few series of meetings and so on, but he's still building his church. Out of what nation, what culture, what climate, he is calling his people, I may not know, but I have this confidence that he is building it because there is a clear confession of who he is. So the prophet says, Here, behold, through the words of the Lord himself, God himself, behold my servant. Isaiah was a was really a not only a faithful servant, but he was a fearful servant. And he acknowledges that he was a faithless servant. And he acknowledges too that more than that, he was a sinful servant. Remember that's chapter back in chapter six, earlier chapters, he's pronouncing woes on the people, and rightly so. Look at them. Look at the condition of the nation. Finally he says, Who's me? Who's me? In other words, there's a man that identified himself with whatever weaknesses were found in the people. We'll be tied any man that stands on any platform anywhere and seeks to minister as if he was above, as if he was above the weaknesses of the people he's speaking to. Gideon would say this, why is all this befallen us? But Gideon had his house in order. Who could really point a finger at Gideon? But he identified himself with the weakness of the people. So do we today. I mean, as preachers, we bear whatever responsibility there is to bear for weaknesses that are found in us that likely magnify themselves in the people that we seek to work, work with or speak to. However, how lovely it is to see, he says, Behold my servant, he shall de- deal prudently, and he says three things. He shall be exalted, extolled, and be made very high. I would suggest to you, there are different ways that you could take it. The exalted here was likely in resurrection. Because he was exalted in resurrection. Remember, that's something that the people despised and denied. Okay, the disciples, and even the enemies of the Lord Jesus, the Sadducees and so on, somehow could accept when he spoke about his death. But the moment that he started to speak about a resurrection, oh, that's different now. Remember the Apostle Paul will invariably say more than once, but for the cause of the resurrection, for the preaching of the resurrection, he was cast into jail. They couldn't take the truth of resurrection. Thank God today for a resurrected Christ. How is that world out there going to know that Christ has risen from the dead? Because you're going to take them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and say it? So here's what it says. Hardly likely. What if they don't believe the Bible? You see, understand something. Let me put it just as few words as I can. I will never convince a perishing world of their need because I can out-talk them. I will only convince them because I can outlive them. How can I outlive a perishing world? How can I outlive that neighbor of mine that I was speaking to just the other day? By the manner of life that I live. I, have, I always have very interesting neighbors, very good neighbors. I, I don't fight with my neighbors, but um, two men across the way, it was pretty early in the morning, they were enjoying a can of beer, and uh, the one boy told one of my boys and tell him the next day, he said, your dad caught us. He said, we did take a look over there, sure enough, here he comes across the street, we didn't have time to hide it. And it was 8 o'clock in the morning. And of course his question is, what are you guys doing on a Monday morning with that? Anyhow, to make a long story short, the reason that I was speaking to them was because a man who I used to speak to. Boy, it really spoke to me. This man's name was um, Caesar Ahrens. Caesar was born in Chile. 
he uh, owned a, a company called Progressive Drilling, and they're still a big company in uh, Sussex. They would drill all over this country, all over the world. Caesar was down with a boy, that, a young fellow that used to work with our boys in Reno, Nevada. They were drilling, and Caesar took violently sick. Took him off to a hospital. Doctors looked him over, did some x-rays, well, spending a lot of money or a lot of time because he is a Canadian. Although he recovers, they said, best thing for you, man, back to Canada to your doctor. Well, just to fast forward that, doctors give him something, didn't think it was that bad. Went back to his work, and now he's in Texas, I think, drilling. Same thing happens. This time he comes back, further tests, and Caesar had cancer of the pancreas. His uh, wife would have graduated with our daughter Joan, married to Dan Harvey. He has two sets of twin children. Caesar was 49 years of age. And I used to see Caesar. I made, introduced myself, got to know him. I went, the last time I spoke to him, went into his house. Big, lovely home, one of the nicest homes in Sussex, if not the nicest. Sat down at his kitchen table. His wife, Lauren, was out in the kitchen. Caesar said, listen, Murray, listen. Now this time, remember, here's a man dying. He's, I think at that time, maybe down to 115 pounds. Nice man. Nice man. Couldn't help but like Caesar. He said, I'm not a religious person, but you tell me whatever you got to tell me. I said, well, I'll tell you what i got to tell you. I said, regardless of what you've heard in your past, I knew his past, there's no man can forgive your sins no matter who he is, what he wears, or where he goes, or where you go. There's only one that can forgive you your sins. It's the one that you have sinned against. That's Christ. Spoke to him just a little bit about the gospel, his need, prayed and left. And they buried Caesar at 49 years of age, just as I was getting back from Iowa. Now this is his, one of his best friends having his drink across the street at 8 o'clock in the morning. I said, listen, now, you know what they said? Before I open my mouth, you're here to talk to us about Caesar. I said, how did you guess that? What made you think that? I said, we know. I said, what do you think I'm going to tell you about Caesar? I said, go ahead guys, what do you think I'm going to tell you about Caesar? Caesar's gone. Are you going to say something about him? Yes, says I am. You know what I'm going to say? I'm not his judge or anybody else's judge or your judge, fellas. But if we could speak to Caesar right now, and we were to tell him, I'm standing in McDermott's yard today, speaking to Mark and Steve. What should I tell him? You know what he would say? Without hesitation. Tell him whatever they do, go for salvation. Go for salvation. Make sure they're saved and make sure that they're going to heaven. Well, they kind of thanked me and off they went finished off their whatever they're drinking in the morning 24 hours later Steve walks into one of our boys office he said hmm, how'd your dad know that he said know what well he says he literally come over and rebuked us for our drinking he said we didn't like it because I had a doctor's appointment yesterday the doctor said sit down for a minute he said, when do you go back to work? He said, I'm on night shift. Now he said, I don't think you're going night shift tonight. He says, my man, your blood pressure has you this far from a stroke. He said, whether you like it or you don't, you're finished your drinking and you're finished your smoking or we'll bury you. Now that doctor knows that fella. Had to talk some pretty stiff and strong language to him. That's exactly, I'm relating to you what his doctor told him.
No joking now. No joking now. You know, his often quip to me would be this, I can't live what you got. And I used to say, say, I'm going to say to you this morning if you're not saved. You can't. And you never will be able to. Do you know why you can't live what I've got? You don't have the life I have. You do not have the life that I have. And every person that is saved is in truth, and this book teaches it and supports it, is living and should be living a resurrection life. A proof to a perishing world that I have been raised out from among dead ones and given a life that I never had before. What's Ephesians chapter 2 say? You have been made alive. You have been quickened. Who were dead and in trespasses and in sins. So we live in the power of a resurrected life, but we also live in the manifestation of the power of resurrection. So I would suggest that what he says exalted is resurrection. Goes further, he says extolled. That likely is his ascension. I like to think of it as his extension. And then of course he says he is not only exalted, extolled, but made very high at God's right hand. Now, I do realize at the same time this could be taking us into just simply a millennial scene and ending it there. But nevertheless, this servant that has been so despised, that has been lightly esteemed, all it's described about this servant, I says, never mind, his day's coming. His day is coming. His day will be when he will be exalted, extolled, and he shall be made very high. So, you know, first of all, in chapter 52, you've got the recognition of a servant king. When you come to chapter verse 13, you've got the supremacy of that servant. Just to tell you what I've enjoyed lately, it's the word mouth or mouths that you have in these just these few verses. It's interesting, the first mouths to be mentioned in plural are the mouths of these kings. Kings that would have had lots to say and plenty to say concerning themselves. Are now kings, here it says in verse number 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations, the kings shall shut their mouths at him. And then you'll notice over verse number 7, concerning the servant, Christ, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, singular. And then at the end of the verse, before his shears is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. Verse 9, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Medical world has changed when I was a kid. And I was taken to Dr. Monteith by my mother. Quite often the first thing that he would do if we were sick, he would look in our mouth. And he would proceed from there. You know, when God does with a unconverted person, he does the same thing. That's why in Romans chapter 3 says their mouth full of cursing and bitterness starts short of the mouth he speaks about their head speaks about their mind feet hands and he just goes through the whole thing and condemns man totally because of his sin now these kings you see I think that it centers around one word that is used in verse number 4 uh, surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sores, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Afflicted. The word for stricken there is the word naga, which is a term for leprosy. You remember that it was the leper that had to close his mouth. More than that, he had to put his hand upon his upper lip and cry, unclean, unclean. These kings have to close their mouths. 
and acknowledge their guilt. And they're waiting to one king that can open his mouth. But that king doesn't open his mouth. That's what it says there. He opened it, not his mouth. You see, this servant, there's no sin in him. He did not have to open his mouth for examination. Okay? But it's just interesting that he will associate himself, as Isaiah would with the condition of the nation, he associates himself with the condition of the nation as well by taking place among them as a leper, even though he wasn't that. Even though he was, what was he? Set outside the camp, shut out from their presence, driven out and so on. He willingly took the place of the leper, the leprous person, and yet died a life of absolute purity. He did not have to open his mouth. It was to say later um, in verse number 9, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Neither was there any deceit in his mouth. So, what a beautiful contrast it is between us and between every other servant. Right to these kings. Mouths are closed. They say, we've got nothing to say. We're guilty. It's interesting when it comes to the anointing, the Lord Jesus of the anointing, of the four different times in the, of the anointing of the Lord Jesus, there's one is unique. That was when he was anointed in the house of a leper. What a picture that must have been to people. They would have thought, surely he won't be anointed there. Yes, he was. Because he always identified himself with the people that he was with. That's why he was recognized as such. Remember, as a, as a Luke chapter 24, to travelers, he's seen as a traveler. And in the garden, he's seen as a gardener. And it's interesting, but he always brought himself, if you like, lowered himself to be with the people that he was among. What does he say? I am among you as one that serveth. Thank God there's going to come a day when this king will speak. You see, that's what frustrates the world today. People will say to me invariably, well, why doesn't God do something or say something? Or God has spoken. The Bible tells us that. He's spoken in the Son. God doesn't believe in two people speaking at once. God has spoken. And you know what he waits for? He waits for the response of every sinner. Every sinner. God has no more to say to you. If you're not saved here today, God has no new message for you. God is not going to send you something that's going to fly off the page of the scripture and say, this is it. God's not going to do that. More than that, God is not going to overrule your desires or your lack of interest. He may in his mercy allow things to come into your life that will change your thinking, but he can never overrule it or override it. He has spoken, he's just left it there. Hath in these last days spoken unto us in son. At this point in time, we deal with a silent God. Now I know there's way that, ways that God can speak that are apart from his word through things that can happen, incidences such like in a person's life. But be that as may, ultimately, God has spoken in son. What does the Lord Jesus say in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17? Father, I have given them thy word. Nothing beyond his word. And he wondered, Paul writes to Timothy, says, Timothy, preach the word. 
So here's the one that gives us all the word. The one that spoke worlds into existence, literally spoke them into existence, is now the one that Isaiah says, his mouth is closed when it comes to the judgment. In other words, he took my place. If my mouth in Romans chapter 3, remember what it says, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world guilty before God. If he's going to truly take my place, then his mouth is closed too. He just took the place of the guilty sinner. He died my death. That's why, I'll come back, but just for the sake of, uh, I did mention it to you, verse number 9. Uh, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths. That's a plural word. In fact, you go to the margin of most Bibles, wouldn't that even have to have a Newbury? It will say deaths. When the Lord Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, he died a death for everyone. Okay? He died a death for everyone. Okay, my salvation is not a reality because it's uh, made possible as part of his death. Okay? In other words, uh, if he was dying, say, for a hundred people, then one-tenth of what he did was on account of me. No, it's just the opposite. It was all on account of me. Because had not one of us been saved, God still would have been glorified. He still would have been extolled. He still would have been made very high. He still would have been exalted. Had only one of us been saved, was still necessary for that death. If you're not saved here this morning, it's because you've never realized that. That his death was that way. It was a singular death for a singular individual. I have got time to go into it. Just let me mention it. Um, it's interesting. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who hath believed the report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. The tender plant here is the word for sucker. Wouldn't mean much to a person maybe that lives in a city, but somebody that comes from a farming background, it would mean quite a bit. We used to farm, and uh, we'd be planting corn, and about, uh, let's see, about mid-summer, July, you'd go by those nice strong corn plants, you see a small bit of a, what looked like corn growing right up, attached to it. And it was a sucker. And when you hold the weed, you cut the sucker off. Because the sucker was just something dependent upon the main, and it would actually take from the main plant itself. It was, it was nothing. It was just counted as nothing. That's the word that is used here. That's how men looked upon him. That's how they cut him down. Yet, how different he is seen as the branch. The manifestation yet in a king that will yet sit upon David's throne. David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, the lowly one and the true servant. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank thee for such a one. This person is so beyond what we have any...